Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We're coming to you on a beautiful May 2nd day in Portland, Oregon, just one day after College Signing Day, which means that most of you seniors have finally decided, at long last, where you'll be going to college next year. Congratulations to each and every one of you. We know that this is often a really challenging and stressful process, but we hope that you're excited for this next new adventure in your life. Um, And we would also be remiss if we didn't acknowledge the support you've received from family, teachers, and counselors over the last few months and even the last four years. So when you have an opportunity at the end of this final year of high school, I would encourage you to take a moment to thank everyone who's helped you through this stage of your journey. And if you're a parent that's listening, you can go ahead and thank yourself. Nice work. Uh, With that, we're off for another show. It's going to be a big day for Q&A, as we'll be taking your admissions and financial aid questions in the last two-thirds of the show. But first, we want to introduce many of you to a discipline that is relatively new on the scene and and might be of interest to you. Joining me to help shape the conversation is my colleague from across town, a former senior admissions officer at Lewis and Clark College, Sarah Calvert-Kubram. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Hi. Thank you, Ian. How are you? I'm doing wonderfully. Um, looks like the clouds are close to burning off. We're going to have another beautiful day here in Portland, as you yes, know. Um, so one of the things I think that students most commonly hear when they tell somebody about their major is the classic, what are you going to do with that? And I think it's very yeah. likely that many prospective environmental studies major uh, are hearing this from aunts and uncles all across the country. Environmental studies is a pretty... I I would say a relatively new discipline and one that I think people don't quite know what it entails. So we're going to have a great conversation today to help people understand a little bit more about what it is. And I'd love to start um, with your sort of definition of environmental studies as an academic program. How would you introduce that to our listeners? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So as someone who worked at Lewis and Clark College for several years that has a very popular and robust environmental studies program, I was actually asked this question a lot. Um, The first thing I would say is that it's important to not get too caught up in the semantics because different colleges call similar programs different names. So more than focusing on what they're called, definitely researching at that school, what does that mean? Um, At Lewis and Clark and at quite a few colleges, environmental studies versus environmental sciences means that it is what's called an interdisciplinary interdisciplinary major where they are acknowledging that issues of environmental sustainability, environmental resources, um, green technology, all of the things that we think about with the environment right now are not just scientific and not just people-related. It is the science and the people in our planet interacting together, and that it's important to have a strong foundation in understanding politics, law, people, science, all of it. And so it's an interdisciplinary major that is giving students a strong foundation and looking at it through all those lenses. At the same time, 
a big emphasis on getting out into the real world through research and internships, exploring and keeping doors and windows of opportunities open for, as you mentioned, what they can do after college with this degree. Um, That word studies often implies it's interdisciplinary, whereas science often means it's a more strictly science major. However, those terms are not standardized across schools. Yeah, and you might find that you're going to get some differences uh, across institutions, just like, you know, some schools might offer only a Bachelor of Arts degree, even in their science programs. And that doesn't really draw a distinction between the kind of program you would get compared to a school that maybe offers a Bachelor of Sciences. And so when you're looking at environmental studies versus environmental science, I think you want to look fairly carefully at what the requirements are going to be of that academic program, and what the expectations are as a student. Uh, Sarah, you mentioned some of the sort of rough areas that combine to form environmental studies. Um, What are some of the sort of pure disciplines that come together to make up the environmental studies program? Yeah. So there is, um, most programs have some underpinnings in looking at um, some of what they call environmental theory, which is a relatively new discipline, but it is academic and scholarship scholarly research around how you research issues of environmental sustainability and impact. They almost always have some type of research and senior seminar or thesis component, but then Mm -hmm. they pull from uh, disciplines across the board, so both qualitative and quantitative research and analysis skills. There's definitely an emphasis on biology and chemistry, um, sometimes in geology in many of these programs. Most programs want students to do some social sciences, um, specifically things like economics or political science, sometimes international affairs, because, of course, environmental issues cross national borders. There's also often an incorporation of the humanities, so perhaps looking at the way that culture and literature and um, different cultural landscapes impact the way that we approach our natural resources. So it's really quite wide-ranging and diverse. And, And I think it's a really awesome sort of testament, I think, to the flexibility of higher education to find ways to solve problems. Because if you are a scientist that's purely looking at sort of humanity's impact on the environment, it's going to be very hard for you to find and implement solutions. We're finding these days that those kinds of solutions are problems that require political will and economic analyses and just a way of sort of thinking about how to make change. And so it's pretty cool to see a discipline that comes together to bring all of those pieces under one roof. Definitely. And I, I also think that in today's economy and world that's changing so quickly, it is so hard for us to predict, even for economists and data analysis to predict 10, 20, 30 years from now, where will we be around issues of solving problems around environmental sustainability, green energy, resources? What will the business demands be around these topics? And so I think that an interdisciplinary major like this quite frankly, allows young people to be critical thinkers and versatile to dive into different opportunities of solving these societal issues. So a lot of students at Lewis and Clark, for instance, go on to law school, but then others become, you know, at the national level, policy and politics experts. Others go on to a master's in engineering or work for um, companies that come up with green energy solutions. There's just such a huge diversity of what this can look like. And 
I think that we all agree that we don't know what the future holds for sure. the issues around sustainability. So I think that flexibility is key in this specific uh, lens. And, th- and there is, I mean, I think with any kind of a discipline like this, we're going to often find that there's a challenge when you're considering it as a major because you don't necessarily see a clear pathway to a professional career. Yeah. And, you know, I, a lot of students are drawn to things like engineering or architecture or accounting, not only because they have an interest in that field, but also because they can see a fairly clear connection between what they'll be studying and what they'll be doing professionally. Environmental studies doesn't lend itself to having that same sort of clarity because the jobs are changing so much because 10, 20, 30 years from now, our demands in terms of how we solve these problems might be very different. Uh, So I I, I tend to think, and you can tell me if if you disagree, that students that are choosing environmental studies are making that choice more as a basis of a particular interest that they have at present as opposed to a particular outcome that they're seeking later on down the road. How do you think about sort of students making a choice to be an environmental studies major and where does that sort of motivation come from? Yeah. So I'm going to make some big generalizations here, but I can tell you that in the years of working at Lewis and Clark, I met students that were coming to Lewis and Clark quite often specifically for that major. They were students that had had some type of life experience, usually in high school, that was a big aha moment of opening their eyes to the fact that there were issues that our society needs to solve around sustainability and resources. Sometimes it was because they took AP environmental sciences. Sometimes it's because they had gone on a, you know, outdoor hiking trip and they saw environmental degradation. There's a huge diversity of what that looks like. Um, there are also a lot of students that have done volunteering and internships around these areas. And then they realized, huh, this is a huge passion of mine. And that word passion, I know, gets thrown around a little bit um, too often. But I would say that for these students, often it was a genuine, genuinely deeply felt passion. Um, And oftentimes, they were not only excited about this specific major, but they were excited to attend a college that had a huge institutional focus on environmental sustainability as well. So at a place like Lewis and Clark, there is this amazing academic degree that they were excited about, but it's also a college that reflects really openly on how they invest their financial resources in environmentally green and safe um, investments. It's a campus that is committed to eating as much local and organic food. It's not just an academic approach. It's also a lifestyle. I think that these students are also often excited to live and work in a city that has a lot of opportunities around this. And, of course, as you know, living in Portland, um, (coughs) excuse me, having some allergies here in Portland this spring. Um, here in Portland, we are also a leader in thinking about, on the West Coast in particular, um, environmentally sustainable urban growth, how we can use organic local resources. We have an, a, a very compelling local branch of government called Metro that looks at these issues. And so a lot of students were also drawn to be in a city where they could get out and apply these, these interests in action. Um, and not always, this is a big generalization, but a lot of these students are also just very in love with the outdoors. So a place like Lewis and Clark that has a program called College Outdoors, they run a hundred guided day and overnight trips per year into the Pacific Northwest, was often a parallel enjoyment for these students to have their academic, professional, and personal joys all come together, if that makes any sense. 
It does. And I think what it what it sort of gets to at its core is this concept that, you know, students are really making a choice about an environmental studies major that comes from a set of their values and um, an interest in solving particular kinds of problems. And, you know, the, the, coming to Portland and Lewis and Clark, I think, is a really great sort of example of a way to, um, you know, tackle some of those problems and to see an institution that lives out that opportunity. Um, there's also, there are a lot of schools that offer really terrific environmental studies programs. It's something that, um, you know, at Reed uh-huh. uh, was only being introduced back in 2010, 2011 as a new interdisciplinary major. Um, you know, my, my mom actually works down for the School of Sustainability at Arizona State University, which has only been around for. Um, about 15 to 20 years. So there's there's starting to be more institutional investment in these kinds of academic yeah. programs. Um, and you're starting to see buy-in from the institutions, not only in terms of creating those programs for students, but also in giving them really great opportunities to support mm-hmm. the sustainability of that particular institution. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah, as you consider environmental studies is is really interdisciplinary. And so I can imagine that sometimes there are challenges in identifying what a what is a good environmental studies program? Because you're really looking at this chemistry program plus economics plus poli-sci all sort of coming together. There's there's usually some sort of a system that allows students to connect across all those disciplines. How might students go through the process of comparing different environmental studies programs and, and finding the one that's going to be the best fit for them? Yeah. I think that for any student, it's also really helpful to think about what their core academic strengths are. So, for instance, some environmental studies programs might be at a college that also has really strong opportunity to double major in something like computer science, if that's something that someone loves. And, of course, science and technology are very much utilized in environmental solutions. Um, Or what if a student loves business and maybe they can find a college that would allow them to have a concentration in entrepreneurship or a double major in business. I think that looking at opportunities parallel to environmental studies can be one way to do that that I've seen students do. Um, Also, thinking if, hey, I love environmental sustainability, but I am really interested in math and science, maybe looking also in environmental science programs, perhaps looking at certain parts of engineering. So I think about what type of student and what your strengths are is one way to narrow the search. I also think, though, that if you look at nationally, the colleges and universities that have these types of programs, there are just so many ways to narrow your focus based on your other preferences. So just because, you know, Lewis and Clark have a great program like this doesn't mean that's the right fit for everyone. It's a small liberal arts college, and there are also larger universities. Um, I think that on a much more micro level, it's great for students to look at the actual websites of these programs to see what classes they require. Um, hopefully, they also have profiles of what their alums have gone on to do with these majors. And if they don't, you can call up the office and ask. Um, you know, trying to learn a little bit about those outcomes, because even if a student doesn't know now what they want to do with this major, I think it's very helpful feedback to see what are the common outcomes and next steps beyond college for students from those programs in particular. Um, those are just a, a few examples of how to look at it. I, I think another would be looking at how that program takes a, 
advantage of applied learning opportunities. So are there opportunities to do collaborative research with faculty? Um, do they do internships in their local community? Perhaps there are study abroad programs doing field research. Um, figuring out how they can get out and put, get their hands on this topic I think is important because, of course, this is a great opportunity where they can build experiences and a resume on top of academic experiences in such a lived topic that is so multifaceted. Yeah, and and I think I think this is probably one space where location really does have a big impact as well. Just given that you're going to have opportunities in different parts of the country to sort of champion efforts along sustainability, but I think that it it, it goes it cuts two ways. Right? So you come to Portland, there's going to be a lot of people working on sustainability here. There's going to be competitive. Uh, there are a lot of really great programs yep. in this space. Uh, if you go to a place that is not particularly active in environmentalism and sustainability, you might have an opportunity to start and create something, really do some fa- fascinating research that nobody else mm-hmm. is doing in that space. Oh, um, so there yeah. are a lot of ways, I think, to think about how environmental studies might fit you. And I, I mean, Sarah, that was a really great sort of overview, I think, of how to investigate any kind of a program, interdisciplinary or otherwise, uh, in terms of what you're looking at and how to do a deep dive. Um, we've got about 30 more seconds for this segment. Is there anything else that you would want to share with families as they're thinking about this opportunity? Yeah. You know, one silly little plug, I philosophically don't always think that rankings are really helpful, but one list that I always send students to that I think is really interesting is the Sierra Club maintains a list that they update every year called the Cool Schools List. Um, So cool, like the word C-O-O-L, schools, and they keep a list of schools that are living and breeding a passion for environmental sustainability. And they look at both the academics and the student life and programming, which could be in the residence halls, the student clubs, initiatives, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. So if this is a topic that piques your interest, take a look. Um, like I said, I, I don't put a whole lot of stock in rankings, but this list is something I, I, in doing some research, think is actually helpful. So I think it's a helpful resource. That's great. I, I love that resource is a, a nice place to end it. And I want to thank you, Sarah, for coming on and, and helping introduce this you know, relatively new discipline to, to our listeners. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ian. Bye-bye. Of course. Uh, folks, when we come back, we're answering your questions. So don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? 
Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. All right, now joining me with her own special set of skills in the world of college finance is our social media maven, college finance expert, (laughs) Shannon Vasconcelos. Welcome back to the show, Shannon. Thank you, Ian. I'm happy to be here. Good. And we're just going to get right into it. We've got a lot of questions from our listeners. They've sent them in through Facebook um, to our email address at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. And we're going to try and answer as many of them as we can in the next two segments. Now, I'm the host and I usually ask the question. So I'd love it if you could start me off with something that lets me launch into an answer of my own. So why don't you go first and then I'll ask you one afterward. Yes, we will put you on the hot seat, Ian. Uh, So our first question comes in from Melinda. And Melinda says, as a parent, I am a big fan of your show and have learned a lot. Yay. That is why we're here, Melinda. Thanks for that. Uh, I don't remember you discussing interviews in your show. Some schools say they are recommended and some say they are optional. How important is it for applicants to do an interview? Uh, if an applicant is shy, would you still advise that they do one? Yeah, that's a, a, an, an important question. I think it's something that I come back to with a lot of students that I work with as well. Um, you know, ultimately, an interview is very, very rarely required. I think that the only time you're going to see a requirement for an interview might be for a scholarship program or, you know, something that is, okay. is very, very focused. Um, and so it is very typically going to be considered optional. And whenever something is optional, the good rule of thumb is that we want to take advantage of it if it's going to benefit the student and we want to avoid it if it's going to harm the student. The reality is that probably 80 to 90% of students are going to be just fine in an interview setting. Um, It's a great way to learn a little bit more about the school. It's a good opportunity to add a little bit more dimension to your application because you're sitting there in front of somebody who gets to report back to the admission committee about how the interview went. Um, So there's a a real opportunity, I think, that students have in this context that they don't get anywhere else in the application. Um, The importance of interviews really is going to vary from institution to institution. I think you'll find that the smaller the school, the more likely it is that the interview carries 
more significant weight in the process. The bigger the school, the less likely it is to have a real value in the process. I think it also matters a little bit who's conducting the interview. So for schools that have across the board invited their alumni to be their interviewers, you know, to some degree, that's there for the students. Uh, to some degree, it's there to appease the alumni because they can feel like they are a part of the process, that they are engaged in admissions decisions, even though they're they're really not because most of the, the decision rests on other factors in the process. So um, I would say for students that are looking at particularly smaller schools or schools that have a very strong sense of community, those that are very heavily residential, those tend to be places where students should take advantage of an interview. The time that you'll want to do it is mid to late summer into the fall of your senior year. And the best way to prep for an interview is to just have a conversation with a family friend, another adult as a student. Um, Just talk. See if you can hold a conversation for 20 minutes. Uh, Answer questions about what you're interested in, what you've been reading, what you like about your school, what you don't like about your school. Um, It's that sort of comfort level and that rapport that you build through an interview that's going to be much more important than the actual content of your answers. And I think that's, that's probably the most important thing to stress for students as they're thinking about getting into an interview is that your answers at least uh, the words that you choose and the things that you say are, are less important than your overall demeanor and your attitude and your engagement with your interviewer. They're not looking to write down an exact quote of what you said. They're looking to engage with you and see how you respond to interesting questions. Um, so for most students, go for it. Uh, if that scares your student to death, uh, then they probably shouldn't do the interview. So um, I think that there are, you know, there there are um, answers for all students there. Right. All right and Shannon. I'd say on that kind of, that spectrum of a student being scared to death, if your student is a little nervous, I think, you know, I think it's important for them to know that, you know, it's, it's okay that the, the admissions officers or the alumni that are doing the interviews are used to talking with kids who are a little nervous about that. So being a, scared to death is one thing, but a little nervous, you might want to power through that. Am I right? Yeah, that's definitely true. I, I think that in my all my career, there were very few times where an interview was a negative in the application, where it actually uh, moved the student into yeah. a no pile from a yes pile. So, and and that's because the student says something yeah. that's offensive or rude or forgets mm. the name of this school and and declares interest somewhere else. <laughs> you know, whatever it is, um, it's something very very striking. Uh, so, yeah, you know, yeah. just showing up and being a little bit shy is never a bad thing in the context of an interview. Perfect. Wonderful. All right. We have a question from someone named International Student. Um, I'm guessing this is just an international <laughs> student who does not give their name. That is clearly uh, their given name, yes. <laughs> my question, says International Student, is about scholarships and financial aid. What should an international student do to prepare for the financial aid application process? Yes. So uh, assuming that this person is not just named international student and is in fact an international student, really the the biggest thing that an international student um, should do if if you're in the market for financial aid in the U.S. and you are an international student, uh, the biggest thing to do is figure out what colleges might be willing to provide you with scholarships or financial aid. Uh, here in the U.S., really the two biggest sources of funding for college are the government and then the colleges themselves. 
And the government only provides aid to U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Those are the qualifications. Uh, so international students are not eligible for government aid, so that big source is out. Um, so what you're left with is the colleges themselves. So that's where you're hoping to see some funding from. But the problem is that many, many U.S. colleges kind of mirror the government policy of only providing funding to U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Uh, and honestly, for many of these schools, international students are really like a funding source for them. They will only accept international students who can afford to pay the tuition bill. You have to be docu- really able to document that you can actually pay the bill. Uh, and they don't offer international students any kind of discounts uh, in the form of scholarships or financial aid. That's the case at many, many U.S. schools. But there absolutely are other U.S. schools that will provide aid to international students. So you just have to do your research. Uh, you can start by just doing some basic web searches, you know, search for terms like you know, colleges that award financial aid to international students. Um, to, to search for that term as a starting place, you will come up with lots of lists of schools that are generous with international students. Uh, you'll definitely want to verify that, that information directly on the college's website, though, because many of those lists are you know, out of date. Colleges can change their policies at any time, so just be aware of that right. and make sure you're verifying anything directly um, with, with the college. The other thing you want to verify is what type of financial aid they offer to international students. Is it merit-based scholarships, or is it need-based grants, or is it both? Um, so you will need to figure out if you might qualify for whatever type of aid they give. You know, if they award merit scholarships to international students, okay, are you going to be a standout student there who's going to qualify for their merit scholarships? If they award need-based financial aid, will your family be considered needy? Um, and so you're going to want to figure that out. The college should have a, a net price calculator on, on their website that can help you figure that out. Uh, if we are talking about need-based aid, you're going to have to fill out a form called the CSS Profile. That's a financial aid application. Um, we hear about the FAFSA all the time as the big financial aid application, but that is only for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Um, so for schools that do award need-based aid to international students, you're going to have to fill out the profile. You're going to have to convert your family's financials all into U.S. dollars to fill out that form. You, in some cases, you might have to provide translated documentation. Um, so you're just going to have to do a little bit of research um, on, in terms of figuring out which colleges are going to be willing to award you financial aid. Uh, and just remember that this is just like one piece of research in terms of the the, the whole, uh, you know, college research puzzle. You know, you, you'll get a list of, you know, schools that are generous with aid for international students, but that doesn't mean that you're going to meet the academic qualifications of those schools. It doesn't mean those schools, you know, have the major you want. Um, so you're going to want to make sure you're researching all these different parts of the, the college admissions process and kind of putting those puzzle pieces together. Um, and just to throw a plug in there, we did do a blog post um, on our blog, which is blog.getintocollege.com. Uh, it's called Are International Students Eligible for Financial Aid? So search for that on our blog, and that gives some good resources to do some research as well. Awesome. I think that's great. Mm-hmm. Nice job putting that plug in um, for our blog. I can yeah. always count on you for that, Shannon. <laughs> always. <laughs> <laughs> 
All righty. And now a question for you, Ian. And this came in through Twitter. Um, so I'll put in another plug. Follow us. Our Twitter handle is at collegecoachbh. Um, so make sure you follow us there. And this uh, question came in from Twitter handle famous lefty of the day. I have to tell you, I was intrigued by that handle. I, I assumed it was like a political um, organization <laughs> talking with left politics, but it is not. It's famous lefty of the day. It's about left-handed people. And every day Great. there's a post of a new left-handed person. So I was scrolling through their feed, learning all about Steve McQueen and David Bowie, all these famous left-handed people. So you may want to check out that Twitter yeah, page. Yeah, go ahead. But... The big digression. So famous lefty of the day's question is, um, should half Asian kids with Caucasian last names feel obligated to identify as Asian when applying to highly selective schools or Asian babies that were adopted by two Caucasian parents? for that matter. And I'm guessing you probably want to give a little bit of background here. I'd say that this question um, relates to what used to be the most famous lawsuit in the, in the college admissions world before, you know, a couple of celebrities started cheating and bribing their way into college. Uh, right. But yeah, maybe a little background on that would be good, Ian. Well, I, I first, I, first I just want to answer the, the literal question. Should half Asian kids uh-huh. with Caucasian last names yeah. feel obligated to identify as Asian when applying to highly selective schools? Uh, you don't have to feel obligated to identify as anything when you're applying to these schools. There is an opportunity for you to um, not indicate your race or ethnicity when you apply for college anywhere. And anybody has the right to do that. Um, it is not required that you indicate your race or ethnicity on the application. So that is sort of the literal answer to the question. Uh, There's a lot more that's going on behind this though. And I think that there is sort of this underlying assumption that uh, students who uh, identify as Asian are somehow put in a disadvantageous position when they make that declaration. And that perhaps those students that don't have Asian surnames who are not apparently Asian on their application can get around that negative factor in the app by not disclosing their ethnicity. Um, I think that that tends to be something that is uh, a misconception that I'm seeing from families. Uh, It's something that I'm seeing as a misconception from uh, basically society as a whole when we talk about the college admission process. Uh, I think that there is a conflation of Uh, a lot of different factors when it comes to highly selective admissions. And we can look at this question and see that there is literally um, a reference to highly selective schools. So there's an assumption here that it is only highly selective schools that are are sort of unfairly um, targeting Asian students or, or, you know, pushing out uh, qualified Asian students from the application process. And the reality is that highly selective schools are highly selective for everyone. Their admit rates are very, very low. Um, And it, 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 I wouldn't say that you get anywhere by denying sort of yourself an opportunity to declare your identity. Your application Uh is at its best when it is authentic, when it feels like you, when you are saying to an admission officer, here's who I am, here are the things that I've done through high school, these are the things that I'm proud of, these are the teachers that are testifying to my excellence, et cetera, et cetera. And when you look at that first page of the app 
and it asks you your race or ethnicity, and you decide that you want to try and hide some aspect of who you are, you're getting yourself off to the wrong foot, even just from a philosophical right. perspective. So I think yeah. that there is a much deeper conversation for us to have here as it pertains to Asian students in highly selective admissions processes. And it's something that I've had with many, many families over the course of my career here at College Coach Bright Horizons. Um, and I think that we have had some uh, segments with that conversation on the radio show in the past. It's far too detailed, I think, to get into here, but I have confidence in the reality that this process is looking fairly at students and never is there a situation where they see a box that is checked and say, we have to take this student down a peg because they've checked the Asian box, uh, or we have to take this student down a student because they've checked the Caucasian box. Um, so, you know, be who you are in all ways and be proud of who you are and understand that by being authentic, you're really giving yourself the best opportunity to get into any school. Um, Shannon, I, we have about 30 seconds left in this segment. So instead of asking you a question and, and getting you to do a sprint to an answer, let's hold that thought and we'll come on back for uh, another set of questions after the break. Does that sound okay? Sounds perfect. All right. Awesome. Folks, when we come back, we've got more questions and answers. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you ready for a broad look at everything to do with the world of sports? If so, tune in to the Mike Abadir Show. It's a unique perspective to the connections between sports and business. Host Mike Abadir has negotiated numerous deals in the NFL. Along with co-host Gino Bacola, Mike will bring his expertise, discussion, and some terrific guests to the airwaves. Listen live for the Mike Abadir Show every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. 
VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back to the show. Thanks for sticking around through that last break. And we want to jump right back into your questions. And since we left off with an admissions question, now we're going to go over to the world of college finance. Uh, this question is from Ahmed. Um, here it comes, Shannon. Are you ready? Ready. Okay. Ahmed has a rental piece of property, but has created an LLC. So it's a business. He asks, do I have to include the value of the real estate on the FAFSA? Yeah. So Ahmed clearly knows a little something about the FAFSA here that, that isn't explicitly stated in his question that we, that we need to get into. So the FAFSA asks basically two questions where this property that he owns could come into play. And so, so the, the FAFSA asks, the first question is, what is the net worth of your investments, including real estate? And then the other question is, what is the net worth of your businesses? So Ahmed has a piece of real estate, but it's registered as a business. So which question does it fall under? Um, and the reason that this matters is because the FAFSA has an exclusion of small family-owned businesses. So the, the FAFSA specifies on that question where it asks you what's the value of your businesses. It, said, it says exclude any businesses uh, that are majority family-owned and employ less than 100 people. Um, so if it me- a business meets that qualifications, you don't have to report it all at all on the FAFSA. It's invisible. Um, so if this property that, that Amend has is totally owned within the family, employs less than 100 people, that's, um, that property is excluded from the calculations if it is considered a business. Um, but the investment question, what's the value of your investments, including real estate, does not have that same exclusion. So basically, where does he report this property? It counts against you if it's an investment, but it doesn't count against you if it's a business. So what is it? Uh, and it definitely seems up for interpretation. Um, so where we at College Coach always go for guidance as a first step, uh, as would a college financial aid officer, is the Fed, the Department of Education, who run the FAFSA. What do they have to say about rental real estate that's incorporated into a business. So they have this federal student aid handbook that all financial aid officers would refer to. Um, And this situation is addressed in that handbook. Um, And so I actually pulled out the quote, and it says, at times, a student or parent will claim rental property as a business. Generally, it must be reported as real estate instead a rental property would have to be part of a formally recognized business to be reported as such, and it usually would provide additional services like regular cleaning, linen, or maid service. So basically, if you owned a hotel that provided maid service, that's a business, and if it's small and family-owned, you can exclude it. If it's just a house or a condo that you rent out but you don't really 
uh, like actively manage on a day-to-day basis, then that's usually just an investment. So you do have to report it. Um, so they use the word usually there. <laughs> so it does seem that there's some wiggle room, but basically if you want to call that rental property a business and exclude it, you'd really better be prepared to defend that position to the financial aid office if they asked you about it, which they might because they might see it on a tax return that you have to hand in to them. Um, so, you know, why isn't it the usual case? Uh, why is it a business? And, you know, maybe you do, Ahmed, actually spend your days managing this property as your full-time job, so you do consider it your business, not just more like a passive investment. Um, but just be aware that the financial aid office might have a different interpretation than you do. And the burden of proof is on you if you want to report it as a business or or not report it as a business, uh, because they do say that usually it should be reported as an investment. So that is the very long, convoluted answer to, to that question, because it is really not a clear case there. Not super clear, but I think that you'll find financial aid offices are going to follow up on stuff like this as they're looking at individual cases. They are not understaffed like the IRS is. Um, they're they're going to they're going to dig in <laughs> exactly and ask these right. questions and follow up. So, um, right. so you want to have a, really be thoughtful about how you engage with this question and other questions on the aid forms with with respect to the application process. Yep, that's exactly right. So, I have another question for you, Ian, and it comes from someone whose initials are SV, which are my initials. But I promise this didn't actually come from me. <laughs> Um, that, that would be sneaky of me to sneak in my own questions about my own kids and just act like they're from a listener. But this one is really not me. Uh, SV asks, um, my children's district is all in for the college board, so they offer the newish AP capstone. Another local district offers the IB diploma. My Florida co-workers' local schools offer the Cambridge system. Can you talk about the advantages and disadvantages of each of these? Yeah, I, absolutely. And um, there are three really rigorous, um, really different sets of curriculum. Um, and I want to unpack some of those differences in this answer. But before I do that, I do think that it's important in the underlying question here, we sort of see that we have a district that offers AP, another and different district that offers IB, another set of schools that offer Cambridge. So uh, implicit in this question is that this any given student doesn't have access to all three of these options. They have access to just the one option that's available in their particular district. And that's important right. because colleges do not penalize students for taking a curriculum Uh, if that is the only curriculum that is available to them. So I can't say, even if I think IB is worlds better than AP, I can't penalize a student who is at an AP-only school for not taking the IB because for whatever circumstances, that's the school that they're a part of, and they're only expected to take advantage of the curriculum that's available to them within that particular school. So while it is helpful sometimes to understand some of the differences between these curricula, and it's sometimes helpful in informing your decision about where you might send your student to high school if you're a parent of an eighth or a seventh grader, it is not helpful to dwell on the comparison between these curricula, at least as it pertains to competitiveness in the college application process. What matters most is that you take a curriculum that is demanding within the context of your particular school system. So 
putting that aside, I do want to answer SV's question around these different disciplines. My favorite, and this is somewhat of a bias, but my favorite is the IB program. And I like the IB program because students, uh, when they do the full IB diploma, are taking six classes in the IB curriculum across two years. So they get two years of exposure to each of six disciplines. There is a much more sort of interdisciplinary and integrated approach to that curriculum than what you would see from either AP or the Cambridge system. It's really heavily uh, sort of connected to writing. There is a service component to the diploma. There is an extended essay research project. And there's a class called Theory of Knowledge, which is a philosophy-based class that, of course, I love because I studied philosophy in college. (laughs) And I wrote a senior thesis, which is like an extended essay. So that's what I really like. And working at Reed, we really like students that had done the IB because it had a very specific kind of curriculum that worked very well in bringing students in that were prepared for read. The AP curriculum is the one that you're going to see at the vast majority of American schools. Um, It is, you know, predominantly an American-based program. Uh, The issue with AP that I have is that any single class has about the same level of rigor as what you're going to see with an IB class, but there is no sort of overlap and integration between different AP classes. So you see these different courses as being somewhat siloed from one another. If you're taking AP chemistry and you're taking taking AP calculus, there really is no engagement between those two courses. And you don't tend to see the way that they interact with each other. IB allows for some interaction. And I think that that can be exciting. What AP can do for you, though, is it allows you to make a la carte decisions about which courses you're going to take. The AP capstone is the AP's answer to the IB program of the extended essay in theory of knowledge. The idea being that if you do this AP capstone class, it sort of is like a research project that allows you to do some basic uh-huh. research and create a project at the end of your process. But it's still not necessarily an integration between all of the pieces of curriculum that you've taken along the way. The Cambridge program, really rare in the U.S., Um, It is very popular internationally. And why the reason I think it's pretty rare in the United States is because students that are involved in Cambridge for the last two years of their high school program are really only taking four academic courses. Um, So they usually have an English-based class and then three classes that are in related fields. So you would see a student doing, let's say, physics, chemistry, and biology in their A-levels, or they might do a social science package as their A-levels. And so the issue with that within the American system is that you're not getting a breadth of different subject matter. You're taking a very, very focused curriculum in a very specific area of study that works well in Europe and internationally because their university systems are singular in their focus. Our university systems want students to come in and take a broad distribution of classes across a variety of different subjects. So if you do the Cambridge system in the US, you usually also have to do other classes to supplement the absence of world language and social science if you're doing, let's say, a science or STEM-based track. So what that often means is that you're doing a curriculum and a half when you're doing the GCEs. And that can be really, really challenging for students. So I often say if you've got the Cambridge system and you have an opportunity to do either AP or IB, it's usually a better choice to do one of those two because it's a little bit more holistic and a little bit more of what U.S. schools are looking for. But hey, if you're a student in Florida and you're looking at going to Cambridge or Oxford uh, or somewhere you know out of the country, um, then the GCEs are actually probably going to be a better fit for you. So it depends a little bit on where you want to go later on down the road. Right. Gotcha. Awesome. Cool. Cool. Back to finance. 
Alan yeah. says, I have legal guardianship of my nephew. His parents are out of the picture. Should I use my financial information on the FAFSA? And we've got about four minutes left in the segment, Shannon. Okay, so the short answer to that is, is no. Um, what happens when you fill out the FAFSA? The student starts by answering their questions, their questions about them, the students on the FAFSA. Then the FAFSA will ask a number of questions to determine if parental information is required on the FAFSA, which it usually is for an average, you know, 17-year-old student living with their parents. Parental information is required, and then it will go on to ask about the parents' finances. But one of the questions they ask to determine if parents' information is required um, or if the student is considered independent is if someone other than your parents has legal guardianship over you. If you answer yes, you are automatically considered independent for federal financial aid purposes. The FAFSA will actually just skip all of the parent questions. The student, your, your nephew, Alan, can apply for financial aid on his own. Your information is not required and should not be put on the FAFSA. Um, now, that is only the FAFSA if your nephew is applying to any of the colleges that require the CSS profile. The profile does look at legal guardian financials, uh, and the legal guardian would fill out that form just as a parent would. But if your nephew is applying to only FAFSA-only schools, you are good to go. He can apply on his own, and your information is not looked at at all. Interesting. Does that mean that um, it might be more cost-effective for Alan's nephew to choose a FAFSA-only school? Uh, Yes, (laughs) depending on, on how much money that Alan makes. Um, yes, that can definitely be the case. Now, having said that, there's always uh, there's often a trade-off there. The schools that have the most money to give that tend to be the most potentially generous with financial aid packages uh, tend to use the CSS profile. Um, so there, there's not a hard and fast rule there. The most generous schools use the profile, but if Alan makes a lot of money, they're not going to be particularly generous. Um, with his nephew in all likelihood. So the FAFSA-only schools where his nephew is going to be considered independent may offer more generous financial aid packages, but just the catch there is that, in general, the FAFSA-only schools, in general, tend not to be particularly generous. But, you know, every school is different, so, um, you know, he may want to apply to kind of a nice range of schools, and then you just have to wait and see um, what the offers look like when they come in. The other thing you can do at the profile schools, Alan, is fill out the net price calculator on their website, and that will give you an idea of if your information is considered, will you qualify for financial aid? So those net price calculators are always a good tool to use. That's great. Sounds good. Um, do you think we have time for the Christie question? The Christie one? Sure. Yeah, yeah. let's try it. Um, Christy asks, do the activities that take place the summer before freshman year in high school qualify for mention in college application essays? The short answer is yes. Anything that you do in the summer that precedes ninth grade is something that can be included as a part of your college application. But the longer answer is no, you shouldn't be writing about activities before ninth grade for your college essay. Hopefully you've done something more recently that's a little bit more interesting. So while it's okay for you to account for something that you did in the summer before ninth grade on your activities list or resume, we'd really prefer that your essay cover who you are a little bit more recently. Shannon, thanks so much for helping work through the terrific Q&A on today's show. And we'll look forward to having you back another time when you can show us even more of your college finance prowess. 
<laughs> Thanks, Ian. Take care. All right, everyone. We're almost to the end of today's show, and we're almost to the end of the academic year. One can probably be celebrated more than the other, but even with the both endings, we've got to look forward to the next new beginnings. On next week's show, Sally Ganga takes a little trip to Ireland to tell you all about Irish schools with an expert from the University College in Dublin. And I'm going to ask her to do it in an accent, just like I just did. We'll also describe getting started on an activity list or resume, and we'll talk about using a 529 or prepaid tuition plan to cover college tuition. We hope you come back to enjoy those segments and the rest of your week this week. So long from all of us at College Coach. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. We'll be right back.